Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at part 2 of the story of Scripture. And so in sum, real quick, um, the idea, the reason for looking at story, the scripture as a story is it gives us a sense of context for life so that we know why we're here, where we are in the middle of things, where things are going. And that context is important because it tells us how to live and it tells us what to do. So the creation was very fundamental. The rest of the entire Bible assumes the creation of the world by God as a king and it walks through life and it talks about the world through that lens and paul will speak often about we closed last week with uh, some examples of how the new testament and paul often speak about creation and take those themes and carry them on into the mission and meaning of the church today so we saw how much the first chapter of the bible plays into the rest of the bible well now this morning we come to part two like all stories it gives us a setting it gives us a context and then uh, the drama happens when the conflict enters and that's where we're at we're going to see the conflict enter so we're going to see rising action throughout uh, a lot of the bible at this point and the, this part of the scripture is called is rebellion so in some Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis told us that God is a king, creation is his kingdom, and humans are his under kings. So there is this relationship. He's ruling. He gave us a place for his kingdom to be ruled, and we are ruling alongside and with him as under kings. We were given that responsibility. But now we're going to see that the under kings rebel against their king. And something I've found to be true in life, and you have too is that it is so much easier to be God than it is to love God. Loving God seems to be one of the hardest things in life because we all want to be him instead. And we're going to see that here. So Genesis chapter 3, let us read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Now, remember that in Genesis 1, it was the word of God. It was his voice that was doing all of the work. Now we have entering the story an alternate voice. So he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hostility, war, conflict between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat. The plants of the field, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Father, I pray that in this passage this morning, you would show us the heart of our condition and the heart of your salvation to rescue us from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, here we see where sin first enters into the world. And it is showcased for us in the form of rebellion. That this wasn't some moral lapse that just kind of happened. But that this was a willful decision. And that at the root of the decision was not merely curiosity. But it was... A willful and intentional declaration of independence from the kingship of God. And it will be my job to show you this as we go. Now, we are aware of the scene from the prior chapter and from here that there is two trees that were intentionally put in this garden as symbols of the two attitudes that the humans could have towards the kingship of God. The tree of life became a symbol of a dependent and trusting attitude towards the kingship of God. That God had this tree and it was possibly in the very center of the garden. And if you remember our description of the mountain, it would have maybe been right there at the top of the mountain at the heart where God is. And that this could very well have been the meeting place of man and God where maybe if we want to allow some imagination, God was instructing them and showing them the dominion over the earth that they were to have. This is your kingship this is your commission and there they had fellowship 
And the tree of life thus became just that. As they were with God and submitting to his kingship and came underneath his word which created them, they were finding life. And they would continue to live and they would continue to rule so long as they kept coming to their king there at the tree of life. The tree of knowledge, on the other hand, gave them an alternative. It was uh, a tree in which by going to it, the tree of knowledge it was giving you the freedom and the liberty to say, we don't need to depend upon our king, but we have an independent option here. We can rule and have our own tree of life and do it without him and establish our own kingdom. And that is, in a nutshell, what these trees are representing. Uh, the tree of life exercised dependence. It was an act of faith. We trust our king. We will be with him. The tree of knowledge was the act of willful independence, of pride, of autonomous uh, decisions right there. We're going to do our own thing apart from the king. So it's not that the fruit of these trees, if it even was fruit, we're just told they're trees. Uh, it's not that the trees were somehow inherently magical. That by eating of this tree, I somehow my DNA was transformed to be living eternally. Or that if I ate from this tree, some poison set into my bloodstream. It wasn't necessarily the fruit itself. It was the symbol behind the decision of the tree you went to. And this is very similar to what we go through every single day. We have every single day true trees in front of us. We have the choice to walk by faith in the spirit and to follow Jesus and to trust him and to submit to him as king. And we have the choice to every day do what we want to do and do it our way and do it because uh, it looks good to us. And so this is very much the same situation we find ourselves in. Now, we see that sin enters, they rebel, and we see the word cursed is used twice here. It'll be used three more times in the next few chapters. Uh, so this is where we call it the curse. Other uh, people call it the fall because we had this great commission and promise of life and we fall from that. And uh, Paul would pick up on that, say all have sinned and fallen fallen short of the glory of God. And the New Testament will also pick up on the idea of the fall by saying that Jesus was, in John it talks about him being raised on the cross. He was raised from the dead. And Acts talks about him being raised in his ascension. So there's this threefold raising and lifting out of the fall that the work of Jesus will do. But that's what we have here. Sin, curse, fall. Basically the creation of the world now goes into a pattern of decreation. It's going to be corrupt rather other than cultivated. So let's look now at how they get here. And then we'll look at the temptation itself. They had to get to a point where the temptation comes. They may never have had to come to this episode, but there's a breakdown, a threefold breakdown. Then they fall. And then we'll look at what happens as a result of the fall. So the breakdown, how did they get here? We'll see in the very first verse that this didn't have to happen. The dialogue never had to happen. They never had to get this close. But in the very first verse we read, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, if you remember back in chapter two, part of their commission, part of their having dominion and filling the earth and subduing it was written for us in 2.15. And these were the priestly terms that Moses uses to describe the priests in the tabernacle. That Adam and Eve were to work and keep the garden. 
just like a priest, there were certain duties they were to work to bring worship to God. Adam and Eve were to cultivate the the creation and the garden and make it beautiful and bring glory to God through it. The keeping the garden, or also known as protecting, guarding, that's what priests also did in a temple, is they were supposed to guard any uncleanness from entering in and defiling the temple. And so that's why there were purity rituals, because the priests were the guardians of that land, of that building. Adam and Eve were to keep and protect. They were to guard the garden from any unclean presence. We do not know much at this point in the story. We do not know much about who the serpent is. It doesn't identify him for us yet. But we do know that he's evil. He comes in with evil intent. He comes in doubting the king's word. So wherever he comes from, whoever he is, we know that he is not good. And if Adam and Eve were to keep and guard the garden, this serpent did not belong in it. That much is clear from the get-go. So our first breakdown is in their priestly roles in the garden. Adam and Eve should have said, you don't belong here, get out. And it wouldn't have been hard for them to do. God gave them dominion, rulership, power over creation. He told them even the things that creep on the ground. All they had to say was be gone. And he would have, because of the way God built his world, he would have had to flee their command. But they do not choose to exercise their authority or their priestly role. That's the first breakdown. Second breakdown. Well, it's naturally going to follow the first breakdown. It now leads to a dialogue. And this is where they begin to question the king's word. Because another word is now offered to them. You have a choice. Which word will you listen to? So we see this breakdown, first of all, in doubt. The serpent asks them questions, right? Did God actually say this? Well, now we have to doubt it. Now we see uh, in verse 2 that the woman, she distorts the word that God did say. First, the doubt. Did he actually say? Now the distortion of the word. I'm going to, we'll look at verse 2, but uh, she She's going to change the words a bit, and I'll show you what she's doing. This comes from up in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, where God told them what they could and couldn't do. But Eve doesn't quite get it right. So I'm going to read verse 2. You can follow with me. I'm going to insert what she uh, neglects to say, and then I will show you what she's adding. So she's neglecting and adding to God's words here. Verse 2, Eve says, We may surely, she left out surely, Eat of the fruit of, she left out every tree in the garden. So notice how she limits now. She doesn't have the, there's a freedom, there's a surely you can do this, and of every tree. She's she's sort of minimizing God here a little bit. But God said, you shall, this is now verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Got that right. But now look what she adds. Neither shall you touch it. She adds, neither shall you touch it. Lest you, she drops out, surely die. So now the whole death penalty is a little bit weakened. It's not surely die. It's just mm, lest you die. So we see that the wording changes a bit. And so she's minimizing God, but then she's also adding to what the king had actually said. 
We don't know where she gets it. Did Adam tell her this? We don't know. But we see right from the beginning, there is a bit of legalism that creeps into the world that does not actually help people turn from sin. It only Legalism only helps us define sin more clearly. It never helps people turn from it. And so Eve has this idea that God doesn't even want them touching things. So we have a very limiting God now, the distortion of his word. And now finally, the flat out denial of his word by the serpent in verse 4. The serpent said, you will not surely die. Just denies it. It won't happen. In fact, actually what's happening is that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So now we move to the third breakdown. The serpent actually suggests that God, and maybe playing on Eve's misinterpreting what God had told her, He plays on that and says, you're right. God is withholding stuff from you. He doesn't want you to know how good things can be here. Didn't you know he's got all this resource and he's only given you so little. And so Eve listens to this. And now the doubt of God's goodness comes in. And that's the breakdown we see that leads right into the rebellion. Uh, they, They lose their priestly role. They don't exercise it. They question the king's word, and now they're doubting his goodness. Maybe he isn't really all he's cracked up to be. Now the temptation is offered. With all the defenses down, the serpent gives it in verse 5, so we'll look at it again. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For the longest time, this phrase confused me on why this was a bad thing. You will be like God. Isn't that the goal? Aren't we supposed to be like him? But that's not quite what he's saying. And this is where reading carefully helps. And he's going to define being like God with the next clause. Knowing good and evil. Which is equally confusing. Isn't it good to know the difference between good and evil? After all, Christmas teaches us that when we're kids. Santa's looking for those who are naughty and nice. It's about knowing right from wrong. Uh, We learn that in scriptures. Don't sin. Do righteousness. Should we not know the difference? So this is equally confusing. But what happens is when we begin to read this a little more carefully, we see what is happening. So when the serpent says you will be like God, I need you to notice that in your English Bible, it does give you a little help. God is a capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d, which is always translated. uh, The word that that's translating is Elohim. Now, when you see Lord, like in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2, just for an example, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that is translating the Hebrew Yahweh. So you have two different names for God working. You have Elohim translated in God, and then you have Yahweh translated as all capital Lord. Yahweh, as we learn later, is God's personal name for himself. He tells that to Moses. I am Yahweh. God, however, Elohim is simply a title. It's a word that was translated across the board for many things. It was not exclusively referring to God like Yahweh was. Elohim was translated to uh, 
kings, to princes, to rulers, to judges. Anybody who had an authority over other people was an Elohim. So, in fact, even in one of the Psalms, it will, it will actually do that. It will say uh, God is angry with the gods. Not that there are other divinities, but he was upset with the rulers of the earth for not doing their job. That's what the serpent is saying here when he says you will be like God. So don't think any more of the personal Yahweh. Think of the title. You will be like a king. You will be like a prince, like a judge, like a lawmaker. In other words, you're under kings to the king right now. But God knows that if you eat of this tree, you're actually going to be your own king, separate from your king. You can be your you can be over kings, if you will. And that's what's appealing right now. Is he's framing it like they're somehow second rate and that they could actually become their own divinities. And that's what he means by knowing good and evil. Not some sort of conceptual knowledge of it, but the ability to legislate what you want to be right and what you want to be wrong. Because that's what kings do. They make the rules. And that's why Simba just couldn't wait to be king, right? And this song is likely dancing around in the garden (laughs) as Adam and Eve are in this moment. There is this desire. We can't wait to be our own kings. And so this is really boiling down to a fancy word called autonomy. Autonomy. Alto means self and nomos means law or rule. So autonomy is self-law, self-rule. It's anything that is coming from the self and you're making it up from the self. You're the source. You're the authority. And that is what the serpent has lured them into. So now what he's doing is he's saying, break away from your dependence to Yahweh at the tree of life and now come to the tree of knowledge and set up your own power and your own kingdom. This can work out nicely. So we see that Eve goes for it. What we see then as a result, the rest of this chapter and really much of Genesis and much of the Bible is going to show us is now that humans have decided to be their own kings, they have made their declaration of independence, their revolutionary war has been launched, their rebellion has been stated. How has their kingdom fared? That's the question we should ask. We see that suddenly the kingdom has split. God can have his half. The humans will have theirs. And immediately we need to start seeing what sort of kings and queens do men and women make without God. We're going to see it quite immediately. Uh, First, we see that curse enters. Humans are unable to withhold curse on their own power. They find out that God has actually been doing that for them. But without him, we read already the curses and we see that they're threefold. There's a curse against the seeds, the seeds of humans through the woman and the seed of the serpent, which is going to become people who continue to advance rebellion in the earth. Um, Later, we're going to see Cain is of the seed of the serpent and Abel is the seed of the woman. And that there's going to be conflict between different seeds, different generations, different people. There will be wars and violence and some controlled by evil and some seeking to do good. There's going to be a curse on the genders 
We saw that when he spoke to Eve, he said, listen, Eve, uh, being a woman's going to be hard because you're going to have childbearing to do. And it's not just the pain in having birth, but it's the pain of raising children too. that between women and children, even there's going to be conflict and tension. But then Eve, you're going to have desire for your husband. You're going to constantly want to rule over him. And yet it says he shall rule over you or dominate over you. He's going to always have the upper hand often. And that's simply because of the strength of the different genders, uh, that there will be conflict in the gender relationships. And that's sad because when God made Eve, we read in chapter two that he took her out of a rib from his side, not something from his foot so that man could rule over her, not something from his head so that the woman could rule over him, but from his side so that they could be partners together in the mission that God gave humanity to accomplish. And so now we're going to see this balance falls into disarray and it's a constant problem in you look at history and uh, women have been very abused over the course of history. And then third, there is a curse on the land, which he told to Adam, look, Adam, originally you had dominion over this land and you could cultivate it and develop it and grow it and expand it from Eden out to the ends of the earth. But Adam, from now on, you're going to struggle in this. The land you once had dominion over is going to have dominion over you. Just as much fruit you make, the land will give you just as many thorns, maybe more. It's going to be hard work now, Adam. And the idea of hard work isn't that work is somehow inherently hard and it's frustrating. God obviously gave him work to do in the beginning. But the hardship of work is that half of your energy is going nowhere because of your battling against the creation, which is uh, ruling us now. So we see this flip part of the curse is this flip in roles is that what we once had dominion over. We now struggle because the creation has dominion over the humans and there's a constant battle. And that's why we're unable to rule the world (laughs) the way we were meant to. We lost the power because we learned that the power came from God and it was not inherently in ourselves. And when we rebelled and said, we'll rule it on our own. Thank you very much. uh, God And the gentleman he is stepped back and said, all right, let's see how this goes. And immediately he warns him this is not going to go well. And if we doubt, we see in the next few chapters of Genesis, the escalating decreation, the escalating corruption, the great kingdom man has built for himself is not so great after all. Immediately there are there's strife. Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain leads a civilization which produces polygamy. We see right away in chapter 4, 17 on. We see that there's multiple wives being gathered now from men. And one guy kills a young kid just because he insults him. The violence is getting out of control. And by chapter 6 in Genesis, God sees that it's gotten so bad that he has to call a timeout and he sends a flood. And this is the climax of the decreation, at least Climax part one, we see in six uh, verse uh, 11, uh, six, verse 12, uh, 11 and 12, six, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's bad. 
things were getting very corrupt. So, yay, man. Way to go. Your kingdom is looking awesome. And this is going to keep on going. It keeps on getting worse and worse until the climax, the ultimate climax of this rebellion reaches the surface when the creation kills its creator. And we see that when Jesus is crucified, that that's the ultimate show of rebellion. Yes, the creation had been reacting against their king and saying, we'll do it our way and doing it all wrong. But when the king himself came down and they killed him, that is, you don't get more rebellious than that. And that was their attempt to overthrow the kingdom once and for all. But that'll be for next week. And the surprising aftermath from that moment, how the story resolves. So we need to understand that the way the world is and these curses God pronounces are not God's retaliating against humans for hurting him or for rejecting him. That's our human way of thinking. Well, if people did that to me, I would say, fine, your kingdom will be cursed. That's not what God's doing. He is not like a man. He does not react like a man. What God is doing is he's telling them If you want to rule on your own, this is what it will look like because this is naturally all you are capable of doing without me in the tree of life. That's what's happening. We're seeing a natural byproduct, not retaliation from an angry God. They had a chance. It's it's mind blowing to me that God didn't just instantly say, fine, done. They had a chance. God walked through the garden calling for Adam, not a, where are you? How dare you? But a, maybe this is what I imagine. So take it or leave it. Maybe God had went to their appointed time at the tree of life and Adam and Eve weren't there. That's weird. Where are you? You guys never miss. And now the questions begin to rise. Hey, Adam, where are you? And of course God knows, but these are appeals Where are you? Come back. I'm here. I'm willing to forgive. But rather than admitting fault and coming for forgiveness, as humans have done ever since, they make excuses and we blame. Adam does not take up his priestly role of having dominion over the earth. He, for the first time, admits that he wasn't having dominion. People who make excuses and blame other things or other situations or other people are people who do not have control over their life. They are playing the victim of life. They are playing the slaves of their conditions. And this is exactly what Adam and Eve do. When God comes to them, they don't take responsibility and ownership and say, you know, we had authority over this and we simply dropped the ball and chose to do wrong. We are sorry. Rather than saying that, they make excuses like they couldn't control the situation. Adam says, it's the woman. She ruled me is essentially what he's saying by blaming her. She ruled me. If she wasn't here, I would have been pure in my conduct. And then the woman does the same thing. It's the serpent. If he wasn't here, we would never have fallen into this. But knowing what we know from before, we see the irony in this. And we're saying, no, guys, you had all the power you needed to say no to all of this. You were not victims of this. You chose this in all of your power. You chose this. They chose slavery rather than mastery. 
And this is what we see going on in the world today. Not that we have the same dominion. We have fallen far short of that. And we know that in our experience. But we continue to exercise our right to be the victim. We continue to blame and continue to make excuses. And we allow the creation, the serpent, others to rule us. And you don't need to look much further than alcoholism, than to people who are perverting the practices of sexual acts um, and other sins. You go down the list, but those are prevalent because they're very tied to creation. Uh, You don't need to look much further than that, than to see that creation is brutally abusing us at times. Not because the creation is wicked. uh, Alcohol, wine, if you just want to take wine, it's from a grape. It's not inherently wicked, but it's, it's the humans letting it master them that is wicked. It's the denial of their role. It's the uh, same thing with sex. God made it. Adam and Eve were to procreate, fill the earth, right? Uh, obviously, it was there. It was part of God's plan. It's not wicked in and of itself, but it's when sex has mastery over the human being that it becomes wicked. And that's the battle we see going on. And since our rebellion, the way the world is, is because we once, we are supposed to be the under kings controlling the creation, but it has totally reversed. We surrendered that right. It, it controls us. And that's the battle we have in life. We're battling control. Who has control over what? The beauty is, as we mentioned last week, is that in Romans 6, Paul declares that in Jesus Sin no longer has dominion over us. Remember the question? Oh, grace. Cool. So what then? Can I continue to sin that grace may abound? And Paul's like, you guys don't get it. Jesus baptized you into himself so that you may walk as a newness of life. That's a phrase for a new creation. In other words, you're restoring what Adam once had, whom Paul talked about right before that passage. He said, Jesus is the new Adam. Adam failed his commission. Jesus was successful in his commission. He had dominion over all the parts of creation. We saw him do it on the earth. He healed diseases. He had mastery over the blind, the lame, uh, healed people's bodies, mastery there. He had mastery over creation as he called storms, walked on water, rode on donkeys that were unbroken in a boisterous, noisy crowd. He told fish where to go and the disciples were able to catch a huge abundant amount. That's dominion. And that is the original dominion. And Jesus comes on the scene as the new Adam and says, this is the way it was meant to be. This is the dominion humans are supposed to have. People are attracted to this. And Paul picks up on it and says that Adam failed. This Adam was successful. Jesus. Then he goes into, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No way. Jesus is making us new creations. We're joining the new Adam and now sin will no longer have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. You see the point Paul's making that in Jesus, the Christian is regaining all those slowly and little portions and not perfectly, but we have regained an element of our dominion over creation. And that's why Paul says the Christian should be sinning a little bit less than he used to, because the Christian understands that much of my sin is my willingness to blame other people or things and let the creation have mastery over me. But in Christ, we see differently. And he says, you're no longer a slave to that. You have the power to stand up and say, no, I'm going to rule the creation right now. So that's what's wrong with the world right now. We've given over our dominion. Question, how do we return? 
Well, the rest of the Bible is all about this question. How do we get back to Eden now that we realize we made a bad deal and we still make bad deals every day by choosing the tree of knowledge? How do we return? We know that the Bible is seeking to answer this question because not only do you naturally want it to when this happens, you're like, wait, this isn't the way it's supposed to end. But all stories, by definition, they lose something and it's about regaining or it's about resolving. It's about fixing. It's how all stories work. They never end with the conflict winning. And if they do, we always walk away and say that was a horrible movie or a horrible book. So we know it's got to aim for this somewhere. And we don't only have to just guess, oh, it's got to, because Revelation ends this way. I know we're blowing next week, but you already know this. Revelation ends with us back in the garden. It has the tree of life. It has God dwelling with man on earth again. It has, Revelation uses this a lot, that we will rule and reign with Jesus. Dominion is reclaimed. We are once again under kings with him. That's where it's going. And so, yes, the question is proper to ask at this point. How do we return? And really, Scripture from Genesis 3 on is an epic saga of continual striving and failing, striving and failing to get back to Eden. He tried with Israel. Israel was given a land that he was promised would be fruitful. This is virtually a new Eden. But Israel also chose the tree of knowledge rather than the tree of life. And they too, like Adam and Eve, were kicked out of their land. And the law of Moses promised curses will happen as a result. And they felt those curses as Babylon and Assyria ripped their people to shreds and took their kingdom in pieces and scattered them around the world. How do we return? It's a long, long story trying to answer that question. What we can tell you right now is this is how we don't return. America, the rest of the world, our cultures, our societies, people we know, we're all trying to return. We don't necessarily realize this, but this is what drives human behavior. It's our desperate search for our true home. And people are simply choosing to return home two different ways. The majority of society is trying to recreate Eden But the problem is they're building Eden around the wrong tree. We're building Eden around the tree of knowledge. And so we try to build Eden thinking what people want is what they want. So we'll build a society where we can get whatever we want and we will be back home. And this will be the climax of human history. And we're watching this and we're going, it's, we do have almost everything we want. There is freedom and the moral code is collapsed in America. And we look at this and we say, this is the Eden they wanted, but is it really Eden? And we look at it and we say, it's not. And we realize the reason it's not is because we're building our society around the tree of knowledge, around the concept that I am my own king and I make my own rules. And all we're doing is we're driving ourselves into an artificial Eden further from the real one. What we really need to do is build ourselves around the tree of life. And that tree of life has been found in Jesus as he nailed his life to a tree and died for our rebellion to give us once again dominion over the earth. That's what we need is we need to build ourselves, our societies, our families, our practices, not around the idea of autonomy, but around the idea of faithful, dependent trust in our king. And that is the way home. That's the way we get there. Does it happen right now? 
more or less. It will happen in the future. Those who build themselves around Jesus, the tree of life, they will inherit. Revelation tells us we will inherit the new heaven and new earth, Eden. But even now, Paul promises, yes, more or less, you are inheriting Eden as you build your life around Jesus, the tree of life. What does he describe as results of those who build their life around Jesus? He describes them as the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, uh, self-control, right? All, I, I might have missed one or two, but all of those. Why does he call them the fruit of the Spirit? Because this is the kind of life, this is the kind of wholeness we were meant to experience because Eden bore fruits. And those that build themselves around Jesus, the tree of life, they too are going to bear fruits. So we are rebels by nature. And this is what our story tells us. We are rebels and we are in need of realizing we are not the kings. Jesus is. And we will reclaim purpose in life and we will find our proper destination when we can finally stop trying to be our own kings and living underneath his word faithfully and continually. That is the way we will get back to Eden And we will see the resolution to this story next time.